millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. G, 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 take me away. Welcome to another episode of The Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week, we have Jeffrey Gurian making a return visit because he just released a book called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, a spiritual and humorous approach to achieving happiness. And who doesn't want happiness? Come on. We're going to learn some tips and some tricks and some get some tools from Jeffrey but first, this episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, podcaster, voiceover artist, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they have an app for you. Okay, thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for links and information and uh, subscribe if you're not. Leave a review if you feel like being creative with your writing. Why not? Okay, enjoy this podcast. I hope you get something out of it. All right, Jeffrey Gurian, thanks for coming by for part two. For number two, your return. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks for having me, man. It was good last time. It should be good this time. Hopefully. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> but you're here because uh, you have a new book out called Healing Your Heart by Ch- by Changing Your Mind. And a, sp- now, a spiritual and humorous approach to achieving happiness. Yes. That's the key. Now, there's one thing that we all want, no matter who you are, and that is to achieve happiness. Yeah, I think it's kind of basic. I think all over the world, it's all that people want in every country. If you ask people what they want out of life, just people just want to be happy. It just means different things to different people. How long have you known this? Well, tool? I've been studying this. This book has been a work in progress for more than 15 years. Mm-hmm. I did a very early version of it in 2001, which actually makes it 17 years. And... 
you know how the universe works. Things happen when they're supposed to. And I had a very unusual occurrence happen. I, uh, You've had many unusual occurrences. Well, many, <laughs> but this one in particular was really weird. I was, I was walking down the steps of the subway, and there was a woman trying to make her way down the steps, and she had a cast on her leg, and she was, wearing, she was using crutches. And I felt really bad for her, and my train came in, and I, I missed the train so that I could help her down the stairs, because I felt really bad. She was struggling. And she was so moved by that. And she said, I can't believe that you did that. And, you know, you took the time to help me down the stairs. And so we started talking. And I, she asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm in the comedy world. And I'm a writer. And I said, and how about you? And she said, I'm a book publisher. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, that's pretty amazing because I have this book. And she fell in love with the book. And she said, I want to publish this book, which is an amazing synchronicity that I would meet her by going down the stairs and taking the time to help her. And this was an early version of this book? Yeah. And, and this was in 2001. And my dad at the time was very sick. He was terminally ill and he was in the hospital. And I went and I gave him this good news. And he was so happy. I said, the book is going to come out, you know. And he was so happy. And then he made his transition, and the book never came out. And I don't remember exactly why. There's something with her company. Something happened, and the book didn't come out. And it's been on my mind for many years. And I changed it a lot. It wasn't supposed to come out then, because I had many more thoughts about mm-hmm. happiness and how to change your thinking. And so it evolved, and, and 17 years later, yeah, it was the right time for it to come out. And I met another woman in Oregon who it's my first, it's my fifth book, but my first self-published book. Right. The other books were all done by publishers. But this book was so important to me that I didn't want to go through the process of trying to find another publisher. I wanted to put it out myself because when you do that, you have the freedom to put in whatever you want. But it's a very difficult process. People make it sound like self-publishing is really easy yeah it's really hard and this woman guided me through the process and hooked me up with people that taught me about formatting and what categories to put the book into and there's just a lot to learn that's great there's a lot of uh tools in here and the the subtext to change your mind and a lot of people are stuck in their own kind of way of thinking and they think that's their reality and uh, one thing I know is that you can change your reality by changing your mind, changing your perspective, thinking and thinking of things from a different angle. Well, one of the main principles in the book is, is you can't change your past. The only thing you could change is your perspective of your past. Yeah, and you have some tools that I saw in this book. There's a lot of tools, but one of the main reasons that I was uh, drawn to write it and I don't know if you remember or if I ever told you about this, I was a very severe stutterer yes. until I was in my 20s and even beyond that in my 30s. Severe uh, stutterer. Yeah, I couldn't even say my name. I would block. I could never say Gurian. Uh, certain letters are hard for people who stutter. Hard Gs, hard Ds, Bs. There are certain letters. Every stutterer knows what letters are hard for them to say. Do you they ever, kind of predict it. Do you ever get scared you're going to start again? By Yeah, you? sure. I think of it all the time, but I don't allow myself to because I literally changed my mind. I had a stutter for about a year and a half. Really? When I was a kid, yeah, which I recently found out about. I was about maybe two or three years old, my mom told me. Oh, you were that young? Yeah. Okay. Well, when I was in college, I made myself run for the president of the freshman class. 
um, I went to a very big city school, and kids came from like seven different high schools to fill the freshman class. And I remember telling myself if I could win the election, I wouldn't have to stutter anymore because I, I had a feeling that it had something to do with how I felt about myself. Right. Because I was like in high school, I was voted uh, most talented. You know, they had that bullshit uh, senior celebrities in those days. Most, uh-huh. uh, the prettiest girl, the, the handsomest guy, the most popular, you know, whatever. Right. And so that they didn't know what helpful. to give me. So they gave me most talented. I played the piano and I sang or whatever. And so theoretically, I was popular, but I didn't feel it. I didn't know it. You know, high school is always a weird time for everybody. And I was two years younger than everybody else. And you were still stuttering in high school. Oh, yeah, badly. You know, I I remember being called on and I stood up at my desk and no words came out at all, nothing. And I, I signed up. I've always believed in confronting my fears. So I signed up for a, a speech course not to, not, for, not speech therapy, but to give speeches because I was mm-hmm. so afraid to give a speech that I made myself do that, thinking that it would help me get over it. Face your fears. And the interesting thing is I didn't stutter when I gave those speeches. And would it ever stop at some point? Like, are you always well, stuttering? No stutterer stutters on every word. They mm-hmm. stutter on about 15% of their words is the general figure. Okay. So most words come out okay. But then when you start, you can block and just nothing comes out at all. And I said, as I said, I remember that happening to me. I stood by my seat. Nothing came out at all. I was just red. I just turned red. I was so embarrassed. And I just sat down. And I remember those things. I remember that like it was yesterday. It was so many years ago, which is another concept of the book. It's why why I talk about heart wounds. Those things that hurt us stay with us our whole lives. You know, Unless you do something to heal them. Exactly, un- until you release them. But uh-huh. the memory of it is still there. You know, uh, Cellular memory means that every single thing that's happened to you since you were born is still inside of you. Everything you've experienced in your senses. So it's the reason why you could hear a song that you like and it'll remind you of the girl you liked in the third grade. Right. Uh, there's no thought involved. It, it's like, or you, you hear, you smell a perfume and you're like, my, my kindergarten teacher wore that perfume. It right. takes you right back. It's like a sensory deja vu. Right. There's no thought. It's immediate. Now, does this cellular... And it's because it's, it's called cellular memory. Does that have anything, is there any correlation between that and how uh, mo- the mind-body connection, thinking that well, you're healthy? actors can... use that. They call it sense memory. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a mind-body connection there where you can bring back an experience that you had. But for some reason, the traumas are more deeply ingrained than the happy moments. Yeah, You remember them both, but the traumas are there as if they were there yes, like it happened yesterday. Like if you, were, if you were dating somebody who lived on 13th Street and you broke up and it was painful, every time you go near 13th Street, you're going to feel it internally. You're going to get some kind of a, an experience. That's why it's good to break up way uptown, uptown, out of the way. Away from 13th Street. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's... Um, so cellular memory is a very, very important concept to use in terms of of thinking but one day i realized that i didn't stutter when i was alone i only stuttered when i was trying to talk to somebody else and i consider it grace i was given the grace to figure out that you can't have a disability based on your location Mm -hmm. you know a man with a limp limps in every room of his house he can't go into a room close the door and walk perfectly Right. right 
if you can eliminate your disability by where you're standing at the time, then it means that there's really nothing wrong with you. That, so you, you that, felt that, nervous talking that, to other that people. That you created this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I use humor when I, like, as an avocation, I work with stutterers and I teach them how not to stutter. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, well, if you were in a room by yourself and you were speaking fine and you thought you were alone, but someone was actually hiding in that room right. and they suddenly popped up, how fast would you have to start stuttering in order to satisfy your need to stutter? Could you give yourself five minutes or, or would you have to start stuttering as soon as you realized that the person was there? And when you think about stuff like that, it makes stuttering seem absurd. But it's a very strange thing to do. If I have something to tell you, why would I choke myself and not let myself tell you? It right. doesn't make sense. It's, it's something that you set up. So I'm in college and I decide I'm going to run for the president of the freshman class and I couldn't say my name. So I had other kids act as my campaign managers and they would take me and introduce me to kids I didn't know. And they say, this is Jeffrey Gurian is running for president. And then I could get some words out as long as I didn't have to start by saying my name and that's introduce myself. It's actually a good myself. power move. You're like the king that you have minions speaking Well, that's for. what I had to do. Stutterers <laughs> switch words. They do all kinds of things to avoid stuttering because it's humiliating. And uh, so I won the election. I was the president of the freshman class, mm -hmm. and I still stuttered. And it was a great lesson for me because it taught me that um, outside validation doesn't work. Right. It doesn't matter in your life how many people tell you that you're fantastic and fabulous and talented. It matters what you think of yourself. Right. So what, where were you in this process when you figured out? Here. Where were you when you figured out that you didn't stutter when you were alone, that it was based on nervousness, speaking with someone else. Um, where was I in the process? Yeah. Like what, what, I was just starting. When I realized that, I realized that there was nothing wrong with me. Was this in high school? College. College, okay. College. I was still stuttering badly. I, I, did, I was determined to figure out what it was. My parents had taken me for speech therapy, and... Um, no, no one was able to help me. Even to this day, speech pathologists don't know exactly what it is that causes stuttering. Uh -huh. and there are probably several causes of it. I'm not saying that everybody has the same problem. But what I tell people is to read my website. If they want to know, like on my website, there are certain things that I talk about. And I said, if you, if you can speak perfectly when you're by yourself, right. then my technique can help you. If you stutter all the time, maybe there's a nerve problem. I'm not, you know, I, I, I make it very clear that I'm not a speech pathologist. But right. I say, who would you rather learn from? Someone who learned from a book or someone who actually conquered it themselves? Which doesn't mean that you have to have a heart attack to be a cardiologist. Right. You don't have to <laughs> yeah. have every illness in order to treat it. Yeah. But when it's something psychological or emotional that way, I think it helps if you work with someone who's been through it and, and figured out how to conquer it. And I worked for years on changing my thoughts. Each one of us are holding thoughts that are not valid for us. And they're thoughts that were given to us very often by strangers. If you were a kid and you were bullied, right. or people made fun of you at any time or said something to hurt your feelings, that's in your cellular memory. You're carrying that with you. That forms your image of yourself. Well, the... the it sounds simple, but it's very difficult because the first thing you have to do is notice the pattern in your thoughts. Right. Well, that's the key. To examine your, your own thoughts is very hard. To be objective 
um, because we tend to believe our thoughts. You created every thought you have. In my, pa in my past. Well, right now, every, every thought that you have, you create. No one gives you your thought. Right. You, you think of it in your mind. I tend every, to think of them as, as an amalgamation of all my past experiences. It is. It is. That's how you create a thought that makes sense to you. Yeah. Using your past experience as a guide. But if you're, you know, these heart wounds affect your self-confidence and your self-esteem. And I would... I think it's fair to say that all of us are holding thoughts about ourselves. Very often we have some negative thoughts about ourselves, things that we don't like about ourselves, that we would change if we could. Everybody has those. And sometimes, like, the, they affect... Well, every time you have to make a decision in your life, you use your thoughts to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. Who else's thoughts can you use? You figure out what to do by thinking about it. And then if you're, if, and if, if your thoughts are faulty, your decisions are not going to work for you. So some people go throughout their lives making very poor decisions. Right. And their lives are a mess because they need new information. How can someone change their pattern of thinking? It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to... <clears throat> one of the most important ways that I did was making a good and bad list. I remember doing this. I, I researched. I read many books because I was determined that if this was in my mind, that I was going to change it. I wasn't going to allow myself to go through my life as a stutterer. It's right. too uncomfortable. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I knew I also wanted to perform. I wanted to be on stage. No one looks at a man who's stuttering and says, what a calm, confident man. You I, know what I mean? People think that you're nervous when you're stuttering. Yeah, yeah. You don't give off a vibe that people feel comfortable with you. It makes them upset they don't know how to respond if you see somebody stuttering to someone else it's awkward for the other person they want to help you with the word they're not sure what to do they feel bad for you getting impatient yeah exactly they're like hurry up you know if they're if they're uh, nasty people you know there are people who don't react well to those things and stutterers have been humiliated many times it's uh it's really a terrible thing. That's why when they make fun of it in movies, it really bothers me. Yeah. Comedians will make fun of it sometimes. They'll, they'll imitate somebody who's stuttering, uh, where they wouldn't do that to somebody who had some kind of deformity or something maybe. But, you know, people think that stuttering is funny, and it's really horrible. So I worked on myself for years, and I examined my thoughts. I made this good and bad list, and mm -hmm. this is a good thing for people to do, to write down every bad thing that you think is bad about yourself, everything you don't like about yourself, every, anything that you would change if you could. And then you make a list of all the things that are good about you, every, not only in your appearance, but in your persona, in how you act with people. If you're a kind person, if you're gentle, if you're caring, if you're sensitive, you make a list of all the good things. And most of the time you'll find that the good outweighs the bad. And then I use affirmations. Right. Um, affirmations of positive thoughts that you repeat over and over again, that, kind of like brainwashing yourself. That, that sounds incredibly difficult to do. Oh, it is. It's a lot of work. To sit down and make a list and, and to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Oh, and you can burn that paper afterwards. You don't have to keep it. There's some, you know, you do it for you. Mm -hmm. You don't show it to anybody. You don't have to show it to anybody. As I said, you can destroy it afterwards so it doesn't exist anymore. But you need to be in touch with the fact that there are more good things about you than bad. Mm -hmm. And it's important in building up your self-esteem and your personal confidence 
to know that. Um, Bad thing, dishonest. Good thing, honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, I mean, you could, I could see people playing tricks on themselves or right. lying to themselves. Okay, but you have to, at some point, you have to be honest with yourself. Otherwise, it won't work. You know, the people that are, like I was, I was literally obsessed with stopping stuttering. Yeah. I was not going to let anything stand in my way. I thought about it twenty four seven. You were determined. And I'm not exaggerating. In order to change, literally change my mind. I had to work really hard, and I created this system of healing that I call STAR therapy, mm -hmm. and S-T-A-R, it's an acronym, it stands for Spiritual Transformational Affirmative Resonance Therapy. The resonance stands for music, because I use special music when I work, it's like healing music that gets absorbed by your second chakra, which is the center of creativity and sensitivity, is artistic that, ability. Is that certain frequencies? I'm not sure what you mean by certain frequencies. Like cert certain frequencies, like low tones or high tones? Or oh, well, I don't know. I guess there is. I'm, I'm an empath. I'm very sensitive to everything around me. So I judge by how the music sounds to me. Mm -hmm. I use music mostly by Stephen Halpern, and there are certain songs. And even somebody like Yanni, there are certain songs that I internalize. I can feel them, and I trust that those that that music works and when people hear it they're like wow that's really beautiful and yeah it has an effect on people there is scientific um, proof that music affects us neurologically mm -hmm. like that's why the military will use certain music to to like get people out of compounds and high frequencies get under our skin and you know make us very angstful mm -hmm. sure um so it, so it, it refers to music that I use. It refers to my voice because I speak the whole time I do it. It's kind of like a guided meditation. Mm -hmm. But mostly it refers to a truth. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're at events all the time. You're at social events. You're at shows. Most interactions with people are very superficial. It's small talk. It's meaningless. How when, you doing? What's yeah. up? How's it going? How mm -hmm. you feeling? Mm -hmm. You know, there's only so many of those that you can do. But there's there's very there's very little meaningful conversation in situations like that. Every once in a while, you'll meet somebody who says something to you that's important for you, mm -hmm. that you need to hear. Yeah. Somebody will, it'll be a meaningful conversation and it'll resonate with you as a truth. When I'm working with somebody who's stuttering or somebody who's depressed, because this is not just for stuttering, this concept is for overcoming obstacles of thought, mm -hmm. So a lot of people in the world are very sad and very depressed. And there are ways of thinking to change that. Like as, as I said, you can't change your past, which is where usually where this is from. You can only change your perspective of your past. And the reason that it says spiritual, which is very different from religion, by the way, and I make that clear because a lot of people confuse spirituality with religion. Religion can be wonderful for people, but it tends to divide us because it puts you into a category. Right. And other people are automatically outside of that category. And what spirituality does is it brings everyone together because all it asks is that you allow yourself to believe in a force greater than yourself. There's some force out there. We don't make the sun and the moon come out and the stars and we don't, we don't affect the tides. You know, that, There's a, a force, you can call it nature or the universe or God, whatever feels comfortable to you, as long as you know that it isn't you. Because when you think that you're controlling everything in your life, 
then when things go wrong, you blame yourself. It's a lot of pressure. Well, you, yeah, exactly. It's up to you to make sure that everything goes perfectly. You can't do it. There's something to letting go. Letting go, that's right. And it causes people mental illness when they think that they're in charge. So spirituality encompasses all religions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all religions and just... And non-religions? And they're, Well, anybody. You just have mm-hmm. to believe that there's a force greater than yourself, and you can call it whatever you want. Again, as long as you know that it isn't you. Right. So, in my technique, so it's S-T-A-R, spiritual, transformational. So, there's spiritual wisdom. When people are struggling with their thoughts, they need new information. You already know what you know. Right. Right? You know all your stuff, but you don't know what you don't know. You can't know what you don't know. Right. So, Sometimes you can't even ask a question because you don't know what you're asking. You don't have the information in your head. You, you need new information. And new information very often is spiritual wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's how to look at a particular problem. Like I once had a woman who found me. She called me from Egypt. I thought it was a prank call at first. Um, she found me on the internet and she asked if I did remote healing. Mm-hmm. And I know what remote healing is. I don't do it. Um, There are people who feel that they can heal people in other countries as far away as Japan through thought. I have a friend in Atlanta, Georgia, who is known for remote healing. Um, I don't do it, but I told this woman, the fact that you found me from everybody in the whole world is very meaningful to me. There's a reason that you called me all the way from Egypt. Uh, She took her mother on vacation and her mother fell off a camel and broke her neck and was in a coma. Not and a New York City problem. No, not a New York City <laughs> problem at all, but a but a real problem. Yeah. And her mother was close to death and she wanted to find somebody who could send healing energy to her mother because she felt so guilty. She took her there for a celebration and now her mother was dying. And I said, you know, I've never done remote healing, but I'm going to try because you called me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turned out that I wasn't able to save her mother, but I spoke to her on two different occasions, and she said she realized that the reason that she called me was because I was able to help her get through it. Not her mother, but with the thoughts that I gave her, I was able to help her cope with what had happened right. because she was blaming herself. Right. And that was a very powerful example to me um, of using these thoughts and these principles to help people change the way they think. So it's transformational because it works very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the A is for affirmational because I use affirmations, which is what I used on myself. Positive thoughts, I make up cards and they have positive thoughts on them. And you have to repeat them to yourself many, many times a day, over and over again. Well, an ex- it's, an it's like brainwashing. Well, for, for stuttering, I would write, you know, there is no need to stutter. I refuse to continue stuttering. Um, you know, uh, I will even something si- as simple as I will not stutter. You know, uh, right? You know, but then there are there are other things about power. The power is within. You know, there is no obstacle that I can't overcome. Right. I can overcome anything that I put my mind to, and. It's like with prisoners of war, when they wanted to brainwash them, they would repeat the same things for hours until they went crazy. They right. could listen to a song. You know what it's like when you're a kid, if you listen to the radio for hours, you hear a song you like, after you hear it a hundred times, you know all the words. Yep. You know, 
you don't have to sit there and it. memorizing it. Yeah, you, exactly. That's yeah. happened to me. You can hear the music actually yeah. without having it on. You can hear it in your head. So these cards end up embedding Affirmations themselves. do the same thing. Yeah, you can, like I actually, I still have them to this day. I put them around my home. What do you think it means when people start to do that and they just feel like grossed out by it or there's a, there's a force pushing back up against it? They well, can't bring themselves it's to... It's self-sabotage. It's what we all do. That's what's so hard about it. Self-sabotage comes in with everything. If you're on a diet and you want to lose weight and then you're suddenly drawn to eating everything you're not supposed to, mm-hmm. self-sabotage. You want to go to the gym to work out and... Sometimes just thinking about it makes me tired and I have to make myself, you're arguing with your own mind. Right. There's part of your mind that doesn't want you to succeed. That's what's so interesting. Yeah, people feel funny doing that and it's almost cellular like you said before. Well, it is. Part of my mind needed me to stutter Mm -hmm. and it was convinced that I had to stutter, that there was something wrong with me and I had to work really hard to convince that part of my mind that I didn't need to stutter. And that's a very hard thing to do. You're arguing with your own mind. Right. And I find that so often, so many of us engage in self-sabotage. Just when we get close to something, we do something to mess it up. Yeah. You know, it happens very often. see that a lot in artists in general. Sensitive and creative people. Mm -hmm. It's very common. And a lot of stutterers are very sensitive and very creative people. Mm Mm-hmm. And life is just overwhelming. As for me, my sensitivity was too much for me. As a kid, I was very sensitive. I'm an empath, but I didn't know that as a kid. So I'm, I, I'm sensitive to color, to my surroundings, to people, to weather, to the room that I'm in. Everything were, affects me. Were you stuttering right when you started to learn how to speak? No, I was about six or seven, which is another reason that told me that there's really nothing wrong with me because... Most kids start speaking when they're two. Was there a sort of trauma that happened around that time? Well, it's interesting to, to, to look at that because what I tell people is it's not important to ever try and figure out exactly why you started stuttering, but mm-hmm. it is important to look at all the possibilities, to examine every possibility. Even if you say, that doesn't pertain to me, you can't know that for sure. Some people, like... You have to ask them about their parents, about what their life was like growing up. If you started stuttering when you were five, six, seven years old, your whole life was about your parents. You're not out socializing right. in those days. You're, you're, you're mostly at home with your parents. So the dynamic that takes place in the home mm-hmm. very often has to do with how the child feels. And what's interesting is that you can have siblings grow up in the same household that will describe their childhood very differently. Right. It doesn't affect everybody the same way. One kid could stutter and the others don't. You know, one kid can be depressed and the others aren't. And and when they tell you how their parents were to them, you would think you were talking about two different families, you know? So it's how you perceive your past. That's why I say you can't change your past. The only thing you could change is your perspective of your past because some kids are very sensitive and they interpret things in a different way. Mm-hmm. A parent could say something and not mean anything by it, but the child thinks that they're being criticized, and they hold on to that. They think that there's something wrong with them. And people can react to traumas in different ways as well. You know, one might not get a stutter, but maybe they'll start overeating or develop an addiction. Exactly. Or banging yeah. their head against the floor. Well, that's what I say. There's only so many habits a person can have. I look at stuttering as, as a habit. You know, if you were to list human habits, 
And I did this in the book. Um, maybe there's 10 or 12, I don't know, you can tap your feet nervously, you can pull your hair, you can bite you know, your nails. Bite your nails uh, you know, I used to have a list. For some reason, I can't think of other habits, but there, you know, some people cut themselves. There's, yeah. there's like, but it's not an innumerable list. There's, there's just, nobody has a habit that nobody else does. Right. You know what I mean? There's no such thing as such a unique habit. No one flies up in the air and spins around in a circle. You know what I mean? You, you do stuff. So you do stuff that other people do. Right. And, so that's how I look at stuttering. It's a response to something that happened in your life. Like, for instance, my parents were wonderful people, but my mom was a perfectionist. And so children sometimes want to rebel against that mm -hmm. because they understand that they can't be perfect. Nobody can live up to that. And, you know, children can't talk back to their parents. Most of, Well, children these days do, but years ago, you didn't talk back to your parents. So the only way that you could get even was to develop something that would irritate them. You, you think know? that's why you started stuttering? It, I, as I said, it's not important to say exactly why. It's right. important to look at all the possibilities. That's certainly a possibility for right. me that I, I wanted to reject the... The, uh, the perfection. Yeah, the, the notion that I could be perfect because mm -hmm. I felt so far from perfect. And I'll say, well... This is how imperfect I can be. I won't even be able to speak properly. Right. You know, it's one of the possibilities. And so that's what's important. You, because you can go through your whole life and never figure out exactly why you started doing a particular thing. Mm -hmm. But you'll waste your time. It's yeah. just important to look at the possibilities. Say, you know what? That could have been it. Right. You know, that's all you need to do. But you're focused on healing it. Pardon me? You're focused more on healing it. Well, to, to, to release yourself from mm -hmm. the burdens that we create for ourselves. There are many things. And that's why, again, it's healing your heart by changing your mind. We keep these heart wounds. You know, every time someone hurt you in some way, broke a promise to you, broke up with you, yeah. let you down in some way, we carry that with us in our heart chakra. You know, I talk a lot about chakras. There yeah. are seven chakras in the body. And it's an ancient Sanskrit word that means wheels of energy. And there are seven of them in the body, and each one controls a different part of your life and a different part of your body. The heart chakra is the color green. It's where you store your emotions, your feelings, and each chakra has to be connected to the heart chakra in order to achieve its maximum potential. You have to be willing to feel things. And that's scary for people because right. not everybody likes to feel. Feeling makes you vulnerable. People are trying to get numb. Exactly. That's what getting <laughs> high is about. You don't want to feel. You want to feel different than you feel. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why this book has gotten great reviews from people who work with addictions. Right. You know, people in recovery centers really resonate with this book because it's about learning to own your sensitivity as a strength and not as a weakness. Learning to honor your sensitivity, mm -hmm. you know, and understand it because... The more spiritual you become, the more sensitive you become, the more empathetic you are. It would be a kinder world if everyone treated each other better. Yeah. If you could feel another person's pain, you wouldn't say things that would hurt them because you'd feel it yourself. Right. You know? And you, it's hard to go through life with that much feeling is the problem. It is. It's a very difficult thing. Some people have no choice. I have no choice. So I, I had to learn to handle it. Right. Because otherwise, you know, 
it drives you crazy. You wonder, like, why am I feeling these things so deeply? But I censor my life. You know, in this book, I talk about creating a happiness center for yourself. Every person has to create their own happiness center. And you do it where you live most of the time. Whether you have one room in an apartment mm -hmm. or a whole big house, it's important to surround yourself with things that make you happy. Everything that you see should be there for a reason. Right. Because once you leave your house, you have no control over what the universe has in store for you. It's whatever it could, you know, if you go right or left, your whole life is going to be different. And you can't overthink that because it'll drive you nuts. You'll become catatonic. If you go right, you might win the lottery. If you go left, you might get hit by a car. Yeah. But again, it's whatever is supposed to happen. You can't overthink that. So, so your home is your happiness center? It should be. Like, for instance, with me, white makes me happy. The color white is very bright. It's a healing color for me. I'm sorry I'm wearing black right now. That's okay. Some people <laughs> look at... It's not one of the seven chakra colors, but some people look at white as the seventh chakra too. It's it's pink on, on the chakra cards, but white is, is, is also a healing color. My carpeting, my whole apartment is white. My piano is white. My car is white. White makes me personally happy. My apartment is filled with balloons and mm -hmm. toys and crayons, which may seem very silly to some people, but... You're, it's important to stay connected to your inner child. And I do that, not on purpose, it's just who I am. That's, it's comfortable for me. So if you come into my house, people are fascinated. There's something to look at every place you look. There's something interesting. And I collect toys from my travels, like little interesting things. And I put them all around. And, or you put up pictures of people that you like that are meaningful to you. Right. You know, not that bring up bad memories, yeah. but that bring up good memories, mm -hmm. because that's the only place where you can cater to yourself. It's good to be mindful of all these things. Yeah, and you have to do that for yourself. Like some people live in very dark apartments. the 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 walls are painted a dark color, mm -hmm. and they wonder why they're sad. Right. It affects you. There are some people who don't realize that they're affected by their environment. Brightness, enough light makes people happy mm -hmm. you know i have that sad syndrome that seasonal affective disorder yeah. i'm very affected by light winters used to be very difficult for me i was able to change that mm -hmm. i don't allow that to happen anymore i, I want to hear about that we have a lot of balls in the air i want to put a button on a couple things okay um so to cure your to heal your stuttering you had all these cards made. You made up all these cards. Affirmations. And affirmation cards. I, I retrained my mind to think a different way. And a uh, couple questions. How long did it take you to heal your stuttering? And was it overnight or was it a gradual? Oh, it was, it was very gradual. It was years. Even, even as recently as 20 years ago, maybe. I, I would go to places and I'm, I might be nervous to speak. I still feel the triggers to this day, but I don't allow myself to stutter. As you see, we've been talking a long time. I don't stutter. Mm -hmm. I don't allow myself to stutter. It could, I still get, I can still feel the trigger, but I don't elicit, I don't allow it to elicit the same response. Mm -hmm. You know, in biology, there's a, there's a trigger and then there's a, a response, you know, when, uh. So you feel the trigger you, like you're gonna stutter. I can feel nervous. My hands can get sweaty. Like when they ask your name, like if you're, the, the worst thing for a stutter is if you're in a room full of people and not everybody knows each other and who's ever leading the conversation says, let's just go around the room and introduce ourselves. Right. St most stutterers block on their names 
because your name is your identity. And if you're not happy with who you are, it's very difficult to tell other people who you are. Mm -hmm. So they stutter on their names. That's my feeling with it. And um, so when I'm in a situation like that, invariably they start on the other side of the room. So the tension builds up by the time they get to me. And my hands will be really sweaty, even after all these years, and I'll feel like a knot in my stomach. But I don't let myself stutter. I just say, hey, and my name is Jeffrey Gurian. And you do, because, you do stand-up comedy, too. So. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on radio and TV, and I speak wherever I go, and I never forget it. I think about it every day. Mm-hmm. It's a part of me. I think about how grateful I am that I was able to figure out how to let it go. Is it a constant fight, like you're constantly reminding no, yourself? No, I just listen to my voice. I'm very in tune with my voice. Mm-hmm. I hear myself all the time. I think that that happened as a result of me listening to myself. And it's a challenge. I challenge myself to do everything uncomfortable. I, went, I made myself go to Europe alone mm-hmm. because traveling is very hard for me. I have really bad ADD, and I get very confused with traveling. GPS is a godsend to me, you know, it's unbelievable. I don't know how I ever went anywhere all those years. I used to beg people to write directions for me, go three blocks and make a right and then make a left because I don't know north and south. People would always try to give me maps. I'm like, I can't, I always thought north was the way you're facing. Eh. You know, if you're going this way, that's north. If you're going this way, that's north, you know. South, I know, is always behind me. Right? Every, everyone's got their own north, yeah. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know that north was always in the same place. I thought it was relative, depending right. on where you're going. It's always up on a map. So I made myself go to Spain and Italy alone for two weeks mm-hmm. to challenge myself. And then I went to the Cannes Film Festival because I had some short films in the festival that I made. And, uh, and it was a, a fucking nightmare. It was very hard for me. Crazy stuff happened. Was this while you were still a stutterer? No, no. This was in recent years. Oh, okay. Um, I challenge myself on a daily basis to do everything that makes me uncomfortable. Right. If other people can do it, I have to be able to do it. The airports are filled with millions of people who are traveling. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe they're not. But they're still going. So I have to go. I can't use that as an excuse that I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's the same, as, otherwise I'd still be stuttering. And I, you know, we talk so much about stuttering, but again, this is not just about stuttering. It's about overcoming obstacles in your thought, things right. that tell you that you can't accomplish something. It's bigger than just stuttering. But yeah, for sure. But I use it as an example because it's a personal example of how I use these principles to change my own life. Right. If there are any stutterers listening, how long did it take you? You said it was gradual, but how long did it take you to go from stutterer too i'd say a few years a few years okay. a few years yeah a very hard work because i had no one to work with i had to do it myself mm-hmm. when i work with people um they get positive changes pretty quickly i had one woman who called me in tears who told me that she was an older woman and she said just from reading my workbook she didn't stutter for a whole day and she was literally in tears. She goes, I've, I haven't had that in like 30 or 40 years that I could speak for a day without stuttering. She goes, just by reading your material before I even worked with her. Right. That's how powerful knowledge can be. Thought is so powerful. Yeah. And that's why it's important to try to change your thought. That's what changing your mind is about. You literally come away with a new mind. Right. That's, it's similar to what I, would, what I tell depressed friends sometimes. You know, if a friend is depressed, they'll say, well, has anything in your life changed since when you were last happy? 
And oftentimes it's like nothing really has changed. The only thing that's different is your mind and your perspective. So and you with, put it like that, it's similar to the stuttering. It's like that woman didn't stutter for that whole day. So it's possible. So it's possible to stop, right? Because if you could never do if you can't do something, you could never do it. If you can do it even for one day, theoretically, you can do it every day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If you if you literally weren't able to do it, you just couldn't do it. There's no way. I, I you always use that example of a person with a limp. They, they just can't. They can't go in a room someplace and just stop limping. It's it's a true disability. Right. But if your disability changes depending on your location, then it's not a true disability. Then there's something that you can do about it. Right. And even if you can't get rid of it completely, it's important to know that you can get better. And we went through the acronym, the STAR acronym. Will you repeat what that stands for again, S-T-A-R? Yeah, S-T-A-R stands for Spiritual Transformational Affirmative Resonance Therapy. Mm-hmm. And, so the affirmative and, is the affirmations. Yeah, the affirmative is the affirmations. And, you know, it's stuff like some of my chapters are fighting the fear. All of us are fighting fear. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you, when you made this list of your good attributes and bad Mm-hmm. attributes do you go through each bad attribute systematically and try to change it well i think it's important to just to connect to it to connect to what you're thinking about yourself mm-hmm. you know there's something about the power of writing that makes something powerful more than just thinking about it putting pen to paper seems to connect it to your consciousness more than just having the thought mm-hmm that's why very often they'll tell people to journal things. Right. There's something about writing. I don't know exactly what it is, but it works. It's more powerful. Right. It's like the morning and pages and the artist's way. To look at yourself in an honest way mm-hmm. is very difficult for some people. I think you said it earlier. It's a hard thing to do, but you have to do it. Uh, you have to be willing to do the work. You have to be miserable enough with the way you feel that you want to make a change, that you're committed to making a change. Now, this might be a disaster, but, you know, often your friend or partner will know you better than you know yourself. This could be a horrible idea, but what if you ask your partner or friend to write down all your negative attributes? No, I would never do that. You're just creating more heart wounds for yourself. (laughs) True. It's what what you think of yourself that matters. Remember I was saying that outside validation doesn't work. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It matters what you think of yourself. Right. So another person's opinion, it's not even important. It shouldn't even come into the picture. Mm. Because they may have other negative ideas of you that are not true, that come from their past experience. Right. They're judging you with their thoughts. Their thoughts aren't valid either. Their projection. Yeah. So it's none of their business. You do this for yourself. You do it on your own. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to build yourself up, you know. I, I must have taken, the way I, I think of it is I took what must have been an inferiority complex and turned it into a superiority complex, not to feel better than other people, but just to feel even. You know how I, I look at it, like if you take a piece of paper and you fold it and it has a bend in it, in order to get the bend out, you have to fold it the opposite way. Mm-hmm. And then the paper's straight again. And mm-hmm. that's what you have to do with your mind. If you have a negative feeling, you have to make it you have to do the reverse. You have to create a positive feeling. What did you do when you were looking at your list of bad attributes? 
What did you do? I worked to... on my thought. I'm not going to go through my list. I don't even remember what it is, but it's a powerful. I have it here, actually. Action to do. <laughs> it's a powerful action to do. Yeah. What I did, I don't know. It took me years. I had to rethink. A, a lot of things I was thinking about myself weren't true. Right. I couldn't win an election if nobody liked me. Right. If you think people don't like you, how are you going to win an election where hundreds and hundreds of people have to vote for you? So you could there say, must be something good about you. Otherwise, they wouldn't, they're not going to do it just as a courtesy. Right. Right. So, you know, I was a talented kid. I learned how to play the piano. I sang. I did a lot of stuff. I, I had good attributes. So whatever I was thinking about myself that was negative wasn't really accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I'm so against uh, you know this the anti-bullying thing that's so popular these days. Kids yeah. are kids are, are killing themselves because other kids are cruel to them in right. school, and that has to stop. People don't realize that there's a mean factor in people. Yeah, in a lot of people, kids seem to point out other kids that they feel are not like them in some way. Mm-hmm. To feel better about themselves. Yeah, to make themselves feel better about themselves. They yeah. pick on some kid, you know, and I'm sure I did it too. But you're supposed to grow out of that. Right. You're not supposed to do that as an adult, but there's plenty of adults who do that. Yeah. And it's that jock mentality very often that yeah. I that I can't stand. I'm not a, a sports guy. I would rather play something than watch people do it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like a big thing, you know, that there's a certain mentality where if you don't fit into that group, there's something wrong with you. Yes, you know? especially as a guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and so... Uh, I think every guy has have, had another guy come up and just start talking sports to them like they're supposed to now. Yeah, exactly. And it's not my thing. And I'm just like, I'm not into sports. And I yeah. played a lot of sports when I was a kid. My grandfather owned a nightclub and he was very, he was a big gambler and he would listen to three or four games at the same time. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> my dad was not into sports and he didn't get me into sports. It right. wasn't interesting to him, I guess. He played golf. He, you know, as a kid, I played a lot of sports, but I, it never occurred to me to stay home and watch other people play a game. It's that, you know, we have very distorted values in this country that we pay our sports figures. 20, 30 million dollars a year to catch a ball. Right. You know who deserves that? Surgeons that save people's lives and yeah. maybe teachers should be better paid and people who help society in a great way. Yeah. I don't see the value in catching a ball to play to pay somebody 30 million dollars a year. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. You yeah, know, it's... there's other people who really deserve that. Brain surgeons, pediatric surgeons, people who study so hard to learn. They make good money, but they don't get paid millions. Healers that write books. Healers that write books. Yeah, that's a good... <laughs> yeah, those people should make a lot of money. You talk about, but, in your book, you talk about following your fear. And you mentioned it here on this podcast, like facing your fear. Facing your fear. Yeah. Right. So um, in the book, there's a story where you wanted to meet Salvador Dali. <laughs> and yeah, this, this I used to think I could meet anybody in the world, and uh -huh. I did. And I went, I would just create a scenario where I would meet them. I, there was only three people I ever wanted to meet: Woody Allen, Salvador Dali, and the Beach Boys. And I met them all. Uh huh. And I contrived a way of doing it to actually spend time with them. Woody Allen, I would spend two nights. He invited me back to his show to read all my material, my earliest material. How did you make that happen? And I how was, did you get the confidence to <laughs> do that? That's it. I don't know. It's very weird. I don't know that I'd be able to do that now because mm -hmm. I was a kid. But I, How old were you at that time? 20. Okay. 
you know, I'm in dental school at the time, and I was sending him notes. Were you stuttering at the time? Probably, yeah. Uh -huh. But not as badly as I did earlier. Yeah. I was, I guess I was in the process of getting better, but I was still struggling because dental school was very hard. They were very mean to me in Philadelphia, tremendously mean, and it affected my self-esteem a lot. And I don't remember how my speech was, but... I remember I had very low self-confidence. I came, I was banned from school for growing a mustache. Wow, okay. I wasn't allowed to go to school. And um, Was it a Hitler type of mustache? What? No, it was a cool, it was like a, like uh. a, a pot-smoking mustache. <laughs> was this the 70s? Yeah, it was back in the, in the day, in the 80s, yeah. And, um, and it was crazy. Uh, so I lost my train of thought. Mm -hmm. Oh. So I sent I sent notes to Woody Allen. Yeah. He was on Broadway and Play It Again Sam with Tony Roberts. And I I started sending him notes on the back of my dental school cards. I would drop notes off at the theater as if I knew him. Right. And I said, Woody, it's been a long time, and I'm uh, hope all is well, and I'm coming to see your show. I didn't even have money. I guess I had to save up money for tickets. And uh, it took me a while, but I kept dropping off these notes right with the stage manager. And finally, and I had no confidence. So in those days, I thought... So you go to the theater, you say, I need to talk to well, the stage manager. It, no, it was more... No, I would drive by when uh -huh. I came in, and I would knock on the door, and I'd give the stage manager, please give this to Woody. I'm an old friend. And I would... I was doing this for a while. Yeah. And I was strange notes, like, I'm coming to see you, I'm bringing my cardboard thumb. You know, I, I thought I would have to say strange things. I don't know if you ever heard his stand-up. Yeah. But it was very bizarre yeah. and very unusual. The and moose. I, and I loved it. The moose, but his stand, like, you know, he was walking down the street and a maniac threw a Bible out of a window. And luckily he was carrying a bullet in his breast pocket and the Bible hit the bullet and <laughs> saved his life. Otherwise, the, the Bible would have pierced his heart. All right. You know, to me, that's my favorite kind of comedy. I just love that. So, um, in those days, like, I knew that you had to prove that you're sane when you're meeting somebody because most stars are not going to the theater hoping to meet young men after the show. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, how am I going to show that I'm sane? So I, I, I figured out there's only two ways. You either wear a tie or you bring a pretty girl with you. Right. And I didn't have a tie. <laughs> and I only knew one pretty girl and she hated me because we had just broken up. But I begged her to come with me to meet Woody Allen because she knew that was my dream. And she agreed to come with me. So I show up that night at the theater and I leave a note, Woody, I'm here and I'll be back during intermission. I didn't even know to wait till the end of the show. I had no knowledge of anything. And so intermission comes and I'm too nervous to go. And she goes, you have to go. Yeah. You brought me here for this purpose and you have to do it. So I go backstage, and it's funny, I remember this like it was yesterday, and I, um, I knock on the door, and the stage manager's not there, and so I take her hand, and I run up the staircase. I didn't know where I was going. I went to the wrong way. I ran up to the roof. There was nobody there. Uh -huh. So I come back down. The stage manager in, is in his seat, and he says, can I help you? And I say, yeah, Woody's expecting me. And he said, well, go right in. And those, there was no terrorism. There was no... Security was nothing in those days. You right. didn't have to tell, bring a picture of your uncle. You, you could just go in, you know. So I went to his dressing room and it was empty. And he was in Tony Roberts' dressing room with the entire cast. 
You did not walk into that dressing room, did you? I was so nervous. And she said, you have to do this. So I walked up to the door and I can see, I, like I said, like it was yesterday, Woody's sitting on a couch across the room. The whole cast is in the room. And I look in the room and I go like this to him. I crook my finger like a little kid, like you call him over. And he yeah. goes like, me? Uh-huh. And I'm like, yes, you. And he comes over and he's literally holding my card. And he says to me, you must be Jeff. And at that, I lost it. I was so excited meeting my idol. And I started saying crazy shit like, let's open up a day camp and throw winter clothes at people. <laughs> I said, and let's walk low like we used to in Europe. And he looks at the girl and he goes, this guy's a fucking nut. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I realized I was being too intense because I was meeting my idol. So I calmed down and I said, Look, yes, I'm a comedy writer and I write stuff. And people say it's just like you. And I, I was hoping that you would look at my stuff, you know. And he said, well, look, I'm right in the middle of a show. Yeah. He goes, it's intermission and I have to go back on, on stage. He goes, do you think you could come again tomorrow night? And I was like, no, I'm much too busy. No, <laughs> I said, no, of course, I'll be there tomorrow night. Right. So I, I begged the same girl. I said, you must come, please, please. Because I had no confidence. I, I attribute it all to her being there, right? It did probably help. Probably, but anyway, she came with me again. It was pouring rain that night. I had to pick her up in Co-op City, which is a section of the Bronx. And I get to the theater, and this time, of course, I wait till the end. And he meets me, and he takes me into this little room, and he reads all my stuff. And it's not even scripts. It's like on pieces of paper, and I remember, in an envelope. And he sat there, and he read through them all with me. It's like one-liners, jokes. Concepts. Concepts. Uh-huh. And and he said to me, you know, in my mind, I thought he was going to say, let's make movies together, and I'll leave the show, and let's right. go off together. That didn't happen. He's like, you know, this is really very visual, and you should really think of making a film out of your stuff. And I did. Years later, I turned those early thoughts into the Men Who series. It was a film that I made for the Toyota Comedy Festival. Mm-hmm. And it was stuff like uh, the Men Who series about men who do very unusual things, like men who take a pitchfork to the movies, Men who enjoy Latin dancing with tools. Uh-huh. I had a guy who did the tango with a wrench that was like unbelievable, you know, and he did the merengue with a buzzsaw. Right. And he would just dance with different tools. And Kind uh, of a show it, don't tell it sort of idea. And I made this series of films that got into the Toyota Comedy Festival. And it's what actually got me started because I made some other films that got me up to Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started writing professionally. Yeah. I did films. There were like false news items, like several men were arrested for smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly women who wore their stockings rolled down like bagels. You ever see the old women with the stockings around there? <laughs> yeah. It looks like bagels to me. So I got my grandmother, who was so kind, she made believe that she had a Jewish accent, which she didn't. She was born in the States, but she, she, she said, Jeffrey, only for you would I do this. She made believe she had a Jewish accent, and she let me put cream cheese on her ankles. <laughs> That's how sick I was. And I filmed it, and she said, you know, in the Jewish religion, we have two kinds of stockings, one for milk and one for meat. Yeah. And this crazy man, he smeared cream cheese on my, on my meat stockings, and I can't get it off. And I zoom in with my camera on the stockings, and I brought it up to Saturday Night Live, and that's how I got started, because uh, Alan's Y. Bell saw it. And he goes, I never saw anything like this. This crazy stuff. Did they have you start writing for SNL? No, he called his manager and Uh had me start writing for his comedians that he was handling at the time. His manager was handling Freddie Prinze. 
uh, a man named David Jonas, who just died a couple of years ago at 100 years old. Wow. And he handled a lot of comedians in those days. But his big star was Freddie Prince, who got him Chico and the Man. Mm-hmm. He got, and I used to go to his office every week, and I would just sit. And he, it took me a year to learn how to write jokes, because I was thinking cream cheese on the ankles. I was thinking concepts, like right. bizarre sketches and things. And you've had your jokes told by Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, Joan Rivers, uh-huh. Phil Hartman, uh, uh, Richard Belzer, Gilbert Gottfried, a long mm-hmm. list of people. Nice. George Wallace. Yeah. You know, I wrote for a lot of big stars. Jerry Lewis. Mm-hmm. Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club. Oh, wow. I got to write jokes for Milton Berle, That's the right. king of television, Mr. Yeah. Television. Yeah, I had a very unusual background with that. I Because I was still a dentist then. I didn't want to look like a joke. I, like, I just always felt like if you want to be taken seriously, you better write for big stars. Right. So I, I went out and did that. <laughs> I got to meet them, and I got to impress them, and I got to write for them. Did you meet them in a similar way <laughs> that you did what you I want? showed up at shows. I would introduce myself. I would do anything. I inconvenienced myself for years. Mm-hmm. Just to get your I, material. I don't think, yeah, just to get people to see my material. Well, the early comedians introduced me to Rodney, and then he started doing my stuff on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson mm-hmm. and on his album. And, you know, he was he was the first big star I ever wrote for, you know. And so once people know that, it helps you. Then I, w- I wrote for the Friars Roast for many years. That's I was, your end, yeah. I was the main writer for the Friars Roast for 12 years. Oh, wow. So, so you wrote for everyone that was doing the roasting? Uh, not only for the roasting, not for everybody on the dais. Couldn't do that. The most, I, I wrote for five people once for the Sid Caesar roast. But um, I wrote for the people being roasted. I wrote Bruce Willis. You know, I mm-hmm. worked with him on his speech when he was roasted. And Jerry Lewis and Chuck Scarborough. Well, whoever was being honored, Rich Little in those days. Uh, Such a uh, dichotomy between the confidence of approaching these celebrities and... Yeah, and the non-confidence that I came from. Yeah. I had to build up my confidence to the point where you have to feel that no one is more important than you, that people would want to know you. Right. That you can't make yourself less than. You're a human being that has value and that people need to know you. That's all. And how do you do that? Just a lot of affirmation? Yeah, just what we've been talking about for the last hour. Yeah. Thought. Mm -hmm. It's all about thought, about building yourself up to understand that you can accomplish anything that you want to. Right. And just to touch on the last part of your book, the achieving happiness, there's a couple of tools in the book about that. Uh, one that I see brought up a lot in many different places is gratitude. Yeah, there are certain principles. When you talked about depression before, one of the best ways to get out of depression is to create what's called a gratitude list. Because mm-hmm. even people that are feeling really sad or depressed, they have things to be grateful for. You know, sometimes they might seem simple. If all your parts work, if you have vision, if you can see, your senses work, you know, you're healthy. You're not stuttering. You're not stuttering. There's people that care about you. You have a family, you know. There's something in your life that you have to be grateful for. Gratitude and service are two very important things. To be grateful for what you have and to do service for other people, to do something good for somebody else. Mm-hmm. It could be something as simple as just smiling at a stranger. Right. You know, just bringing good energy to the world. You know, yeah. some people just walk around with a scowl all the time. They're just miserable and you can feel that. 
the energy, you know, if someone's angry in a room, you can feel it. Or, the, or it's like they're waiting for someone to give them what they want. Exactly. But have you ever had the experience you could walk into a crowded room and if somebody's arguing across the room, you don't even necessarily hear it. You can feel the energy. Yeah. There's an angry thing going on. Mm -hmm. You sense it. We're all very sensitive to energy, more so than we admit to or than we even realize. And what you put out is very important to people, you mm -hmm. know, to be the kind of person that other people want to be around. You know, those things are very important. So to bring happiness into your life is is a, a question of changing a lot of things, mm -hmm. but mostly changing the way you think. Yeah. And it's a process, and you can do it, and you have to work at it, and, and you have to be willing to put in the time. And I was willing to put in the time. And it's a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight. And it doesn't mean you're going to be happy every day. You're going to have feelings just like everybody else. But the basic concept is that you want to spread positive energy to the world that's always been my personal goal mm -hmm. is to put positive energy out to the universe right. and i've been involved in healing and energy work for so many years as a child i was given this gift of, that i can touch people and take away certain pain not every pain but certain pain and it's a very powerful thing and um I've used it in everything that I do. I studied many different modalities of healing, and that's how I came up with the star therapy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you mind if I ask you, you had a heart attack fairly recently? Yeah, three years ago. Three years ago already? Yeah. Wow. Did that change anything for you in your, as far as your life? And no, perception? people have asked me that. It's interesting. No, I was always grateful, and I think that's why I recovered so well i was on stage five days afterwards mm -hmm. the owner of the club couldn't believe it he goes you just had a heart attack i'm like i don't want to lose the spot it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to get a spot here yeah you know um i stayed calm through the whole thing it didn't seem real because i had never been sick it just right. happened in the middle of the day and turned out i was over 90 percent blocked in the major artery to my heart the one they call the widow maker yeah they put a stent in I put a stent in and opened me up And I've been fine ever since. I think about it a lot because it's weird. It's a weird thing to happen when you experience your own mortality. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's a very serious thing. But um, I think that my thinking had a lot to do with me recovering the way I did. Yeah, I believe that. They said, go back and just lead your life and don't think about it. And I have the capacity to block things. I can not think about, I don't dwell on negative things. So I went right out and I just started doing the stuff that I used to do, you know, not yeah. thinking about what just happened. I just thought, wow, that's a really weird thing to happen in the middle of the day to have a heart attack. 
Yeah. You know? What were you doing at the moment it happened? I was on my way to a chiropractor. Yeah. Uh, it was my first visit. And I almost was going to cancel just because it was raining really hard. And I don't like going out in the rain because of my hair. <laughs> it sounds really stupid, but it's true. So I was gonna, I was gonna cancel, and I started getting this weird pain in my chest while I was home. And when I rubbed it, it felt like it was getting better. So I thought, well, it's probably not a heart attack because you can't rub away a heart attack. I thought maybe it was muscular because yep. I, I had been working out a lot. So I thought maybe if I go to the chiropractor, he can fix it. So I left the house to go and. It was getting worse. While I was on the subway, the pain was getting worse. I'm walking in the street, it's getting worse and worse. And for some reason, I turned down 50th Street, going towards Rockefeller, uh, towards Rockefeller Center, uh, where Jimmy Fallon show is, you know? Mm -hmm. Radio City is what I wanted to say, but also towards Rockefeller Center. But down that block is Radio City Musical. And there was a van with four cops in it. And it's very awkward to tell people that you think you're having a heart attack. It's almost embarrassing because what if you're not? You know, it sounds weird. So, but I, I figured I'd be a real schmuck if I just died in the street and didn't tell anybody. Right. So I knocked on the window and I'm holding my umbrella and it's pouring. And I said to the cop, I'm sorry to bother you, but I think I'm having a heart attack. And he said, well, I think you should go to the hospital. And I was like, yeah, well, that's why I'm telling you. I'm not just telling everyone. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> I really thought they would say jump in and they'd put the siren on and drive me to the hospital. Right. And he said, well, I... You got a he, warmer response from Woody Allen. <laughs> I, that's true. He said, I think it'll be faster if you walk. And I said, well, where's the nearest hospital? He said, we're stuck in traffic. It'll probably be faster if you walk. Yikes. I said, well, where's the nearest hospital? And he didn't know. And none of the cops knew. So he took out his, his phone and he started looking for hospitals. And then he says to me, do you have Google Maps? Oh, boy. And I'm like, no. And he said, well, I think you should download Google Maps. And I walked away. I literally, I said, this is, this is like a Woody it, Allen movie. It's yeah. stupid. I tell the cop I'm having a heart attack, and he tells me to download Google Maps. But I could only get another half a block because uh -huh. the pain was getting really intense. And there was another cop on a walkie-talkie, and he was guiding traffic on 6th Avenue. And I said the same thing to him. And he said to me, Step, stand on the side. So I stand on the side, I'm waiting a couple of minutes, and I said to the cop, are they coming? And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't call them yet. Like, no one took it that seriously. Wow. And I think it was because I was really calm, because I just said, I said the same thing, I'm sorry to bother you, but I think I'm having a heart attack, right? Yeah. I, I think people don't respond well if you're not lying on the ground screaming or something. So he called them, and then a fire truck came. Before the ambulance, because firemen are paramedics, so the, a fire truck came around the corner, and mm -hmm. they pull up, and the, I walk over and say, who's the patient? I said, me. Like four or five firemen get off the truck, and they said to me, well, climb up on the truck. And I said, really? And they're like, no, we're just fucking with you like that. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was joking. Like, right. no one took it seriously. Then, then the ambulance finally came, and I had to convince them to take me to the hospital where... Two guys get out who thought it was hilarious that both their names were Mike. Uh -huh. I'm Mike, and this is Mike. I'm like, great. So they take me in, and they start an IV, but there's no medicine in it. They just start an IV in case your veins collapse, because when you have a heart attack, it's hard to get into a vein. Yeah. So they start you right away, and uh, they don't drive me to the hospital. They start doing a medical history, asking me like stupid questions, like, did you ever have an uncle that felt nauseous or something like that? Oh, is, the, like, is the ambulance moving? 
sitting, sitting at the curb, uh-huh. asking me questions for like 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And I said to them, can't you ask me these questions when we're on our way to the hospital? Because yeah. the pain is getting intense. And like, no, we have to ask them now. And I'm like, listen, I'm a doctor. I know you can ask me these questions while we're driving. And they refused. They, they wanted to finish. It was really stupid. So they finally finish, and it's still it's pouring rain, and they don't put on a siren. And I'm like, why aren't you using the siren? And well, you don't fall within the parameters. We're not sure that you're having a heart attack. And anyway, the, they tried to convince me it was safer for me. I'm like, why is it safer? Well, because we if we put on the siren, we have to go through red lights, and it's pouring rain, and maybe we'll have an accident. So they don't use the siren. So they finally get me to the hospital. They wheel me out in the pouring rain. I'm getting soaked. And they can't get the doors to open in the hospital. <laughs> the doors, they're supposed to fly open automatically, right. and they won't open. Uh-huh. And the guy has to climb up on the door. He goes, don't worry, we're going to get you in there one way or another. I'm like, you think, really? <laughs> that would be nice. So they finally get me in, and luckily a doctor came to look at me and started me on a blood thinner, because I laid in the emergency room for nine hours. Wow. From three in the afternoon until midnight. They couldn't get me a room in the cardiac unit. And it was really crazy. You know, my but kids came thinner. to visit me. The blood thinner must have saved my life because yeah. you can't be that blocked and wait till the next day. Yeah. Suppo- theoretically, what I found out after, they're supposed to put in a stent within the first 90 minutes of you having a heart attack, mm-hmm. not the next day. It, I, I had to keep complaining. And my doctor came, who was on. It was just, it was crazy. Once I got to the cardiac unit at midnight, they started taking good care of me. But when I was laying in the emergency room, I was being ignored, basically. A nurse came and said, if you need somebody, press this button. I was pressing the button and nobody came. And I was yelling out to people, are you a nurse? Are you a doctor here? And then after they found a room for me at 10.30 at night, I didn't get there till midnight. They couldn't find anybody to transport me. Uh-huh. That's what they call transport, is when you wheel someone through a hospital. Yeah, it's It must be so technologically advanced that they couldn't find a person who was qualified to wheel me through it took 90 minutes to get me up to my room unbelievable yeah it's amazing so by accident they saved my life Mm -hmm. the next day (laughs) the next morning even they didn't come i didn't see a cardiologist till about 10 o'clock they took they woke me up at 6 30 they keep taking blood and then but they got me in finally and i i said i want to meet the surgeon and the surgeon came in and he he finally, as they were wheeling me into the operating room, the surgeon popped out of a door and he introduced himself and he said his specialty was going in through the arm into your heart, wow. which is really crazy. Most of the time they go in through your groin, which is uncomfortable to say the least. And he said, it's my duty to tell you that your arm could go permanently numb, but in all my years of doing this, it's never happened even once. And I said, you know what? Just do what you have to do. Do what you're best at. Yeah. I trust you. He had long hair. He was cool. And he was like, he's a good guy. And he came to my room later. I, uh, I remember being on the operating table. It was cold, very cold in there. And you're watching it on TV screens. You're awake while they're doing it. You're wow. in this twilight sleep. And I felt him doing in my heart i'm like i feel you in my heart not in a romantic way i said i was still joking on the operating table and then he gave me more anesthetic and i don't remember anything until i was in my room you didn't like your humor huh he came to my room and he hugged me Uh, he said i want you to know you're a miracle and i said you know you're the miracle you're the guy that saved me you know and that was it and then five days later i was back on stage 
And did you ever uh, download Google Maps? Yeah, I did, as a matter of <laughs> fact, yeah. But uh, it's a crazy story. It sounds like you'd have to make it up, but that really ha that's what those cops did. It's unbelievable. I believe it. Yeah, it's just weird. And now you have this book. Now I have this book, and it became a bestseller on Amazon. And it's available cool? now on Amazon. On Amazon, yeah. And it's called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, A Spiritual and Humorous Approach to Achieving Happiness. And what's really meaningful, on the back of the book, I got great reviews from psychiatrists, psychologists, people who work in the field, mm -hmm. who said that all my stuff is very valid and very important, and people are talking about it as a life-changing book. It's great. Everybody who reads it. And uh, people in recovery, I got um, the executive director of the James Club Recovery Center in Florida, Marcy Calhoun, who is an internationally acclaimed psychic and best-selling author who wrote the book, Are You Really Too Sensitive? Everybody said that it's a very powerful book. So that makes me feel really good because so much went into it. You yeah. know, it's a lifetime of work and thought went into it. Mm -hmm. So I hope that who's ever listening to this will check it out. And get something good out of it. Absolutely. Thanks for coming and talking about Thanks it. Thanks for having me, man. It was always fun. Yeah. Good to see you. Happy healthy. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.